And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we have been reminded throughout this service that uh, everything that we do as we gather, um, <clears throat> or rather are gathered, because that's the point. At, 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 at every point in this service, we're reminded that we are always responding to what you have done first, that you have gone before us, um, that you have called us together, that you have um, sent your Son into the world, uh, that the world might be saved, that our sins might be forgiven, and, and in that forgiveness, we have confessed sin. Um, knowing um, that you are always there, saying, even now, turn back. Um, we have um, given in response to your generosity, and uh, we are so grateful for the opportunity this afternoon um, to sit under your word and to celebrate both of the sacraments that you have given to your church, um, all of which, again, remind us um, that your grace goes before us, um, that your grace is greater uh, than our sin, that your um, creation is greater um, than our drive to turn away from it, um, that your redemption uh, is more powerful than any of our enemies, including those enemies that we find within, uh, including the weakness of our sinful flesh, which you have subdued to yourself. Um, Father, we, we thank you for this. We don't know what to make of it. Um, we can only receive, we can only say thank you. Um, as we now uh, come uh, to this passage that we're going to be spending time in um, this, this season, uh, listening to the words of, of your son, um, we ask that you would do uh, through them what you have promised to do, um, that you would shape us, that you would mold us, uh, that we would be changed uh, as individuals, but maybe even more so as a body, um, as a church, um, that, uh, that we would um, taste and see your goodness, um, even in hard things like repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, even in hard things um, like bearing one another's burdens, um, like rejoicing with one another when we don't feel like rejoicing. Um, Lord, you know where each of us is uh, as we begin uh, this, this new year, and we thank you um, that your spirit um, works in each of us uh, exactly as, as we need, and also uh, in us together, uh, to knit us together, to make us a body, um, to make us, to bear your image more fully. Um, Father, we, we give you thanks. We pray for these things. Um, I pray, Father, as we come to this passage, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
Well, at the beginning of uh, a new year, we have been following a, a pattern in our preaching for a long time um, of spending time uh, in the Old Testament each fall, um, turning to a gospel uh, in the winter and the spring, and then uh, looking somewhere in the New Testament um, in, uh, in, in the summertime, spring and summertime. It's a way of covering the whole of the Scriptures, being sure that we're listening to the whole counsel of God's Word. Um, in some ways, it follows a triune pattern. Now, that's not to say um, that the Son and the Spirit aren't just as active in the Old Testament as they are in the New, but, but in some way, you can think of this pattern um, as focusing our attention as on Father and then Son and then, and then Spirit uh, over the course of each year. Um, this uh, spring, or winter and, and spring, um, we are now uh, beginning a new series in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm pretty excited about this. We, we spent the last three years working our way through the Gospel of John, getting through all of it. Um, and so I'm kind of excited now to focus in because um, we're going to be here for uh, five or six months, um, slowly working our way through uh, w- what only takes about 100 verses. It's Matthew 5 through 7. It, it is short. You could sit down uh, and read it in about 15 minutes. Um, and I encourage you uh, to, to read it um, multiple times uh, over the course of this uh, winter and spring as we, as we go through this. Um, and, and I have a recommendation for you. Um, if you want another resource... Uh, to explore the Sermon on the Mount. We did not plan this. Uh, we had already decided to do Sermon, sermon on the Mount. Um, it turns out that the Bible Project, um, which some of you know, um, they make these great videos that explain different books of the Bible. Um, look them up. You'll like them if you haven't found them already. Um, but they are doing a series this year, a whole year, on the Sermon on the Mount. So they've got a podcast. Um, they've got videos. Um, I listened to the first one this past week. Um, it was really good. I'm, I'm excited about that. So that's another great um, resource uh, for you. Um, today, we're just going to introduce the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we only got as far as Jesus sitting down, right, <laughs> and beginning to teach. And so we're just going to spend some time introducing the Sermon on the Mount, asking the question, um, uh, what is this thing? Um, who is it addressed to? You know, get, getting some background, getting some context. And then, and then I do want us to ask two big questions uh, in this sermon. Um, one is going to be the question of, are we supposed to take this thing literally? Are we actually supposed to live according to the Sermon on the Mount? Um, the Sermon on the Mount, on the one hand, contains... Uh, some very familiar sayings. But as we go through it, we're going to find it contains some really hard things also, Um, some real challenges. We'll talk about a couple of those today. And so the question is going to be, does Jesus actually expect us to live according to the Sermon on the Mount? Um, And in order to answer that question, we have to ask the other one. The other question um, that I want us to think about today, probably more important, which is, who is Jesus. Who who is this man speaking these words? Um, It's possibly the most important question that any of us will ever answer. The answer to the question of who is Jesus um, is probably the most important answer to any question um, that you will ever give. So 
I want us to introduce, I want to talk about what this, um, what this Sermon on the Mount is, just give some introduction and context, and then ask, are we really supposed to live this way? And secondly, more importantly, who is this? Who is Jesus? Um, like I said, there are some very familiar sayings in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're familiar with any of Jesus' teachings, you have probably heard um, things from the Sermon on the Mount. The Golden Rule is here. The Beatitudes are here. The Lord's Prayer is here. Um, do not be anxious for anything. Seek first the kingdom of God. Right? All of that comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon has inspired some of the greatest figures in history. Um, Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bono, just in the spirit of one of these things is not like the other. Um, but there are lyrics on Joshua Tree straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but what is this thing? Um, on that podcast that, that I mentioned, um, so the Bible Project has these, these two guys that are kind of the main voices and, and face of the, of the Bible Project. And, and most of the time when they're talking, you know, one of them's kind of the question guy, and then one of them is the answer guy, right? Those are just sort of their roles. Um, so in this podcast, the question guy says, okay, so I'm imagining that what happened was Jesus goes up on a mountain, he sees these crowds, and he says these words that we have written down. And Matthew was there, and, and he heard that, and he thought, oh, that was really good. I'm going to put that in my gospel. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount came from, Right? And the answer guy says, well, that's one way of imagining it, but that's probably not exactly what happened. More likely, what we have here um, is sort of an amalgamation, you know, a gathering together of things that Jesus would have said um, lots of different times and in lots of different places. Remember, Jesus is an itinerant preacher, right? We, we, we saw that in, in chapter 4. He's going around to all these different cities, teaching in all their synagogues, and when he teaches in one city and then goes to the next one, they don't have YouTube or Twitter or anything like that or X, whatever it is now. Um, so whatever he said in one city, they haven't heard in the next one. And he will likely say many of the same things. Maybe it'll develop a little bit over time. Um, this is why if you turn to Luke's gospel, you'll find a place where Jesus gives a sermon that sounds a lot like this one. It's a little different, but it sounds a lot like it. Only Luke is very clear that he's not on a mountain. He's on a plane. We call this a sermon on the plane. And sometimes people say, wait, 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 who's right? Was he on a mountain or is he in the plane? And probably the answer is both. He probably gave basically this sermon um, multiple different times, multiple different places. Um, the fact that Matthew has him climbing a mountain, though, that is probably deliberate on Matthew's behalf, that Matthew would focus on an occasion when Jesus goes up on a mountain and then sits down and begins to teach, because that would sound like someone, someone else in Israel's history who went up on a mountain in order to teach, right? This would be a way of uh, Jesus portraying, um, Matthew portraying Jesus as being like Moses, um, one thing that's helpful to know about the Gospel of Matthew um, is that Matthew, out of all the four Gospels, 
um, is the one that seems to be most targeted at a Jewish audience. Um, there's, there's a bunch of different things that clue us into this. Um, I mean, right at the beginning, Matthew gives us this genealogy, you know, this list of, of names, so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, gave birth to so-and-so, and so on. Um, and he begins his genealogy with Abraham. Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. Um, but Matthew starts with Abraham, and then he hits these various points. He goes from Abraham to David, he goes from David to the exile, and then from the exile to Jesus. What's he doing? What Matthew is doing there is he's retelling Israel's story. He's recapitulating the whole Old Testament and saying all of this, Abraham, David, exile, it was all leading to this man. It was all leading to this Jesus, who's the Messiah, the one that's been promised, the one that we've been waiting for, the one that fulfills everything else that was in this story. And so um, Matthew, in focusing on a time when Jesus goes up on a mountain and begins to teach, is in some way cluing us in to what we're actually going to see a lot of, that Jesus is a prophet like Moses, and even a prophet greater than Moses. Um, in a few verses, Jesus is going to say, I'm not here to abolish what Moses said. I'm here to fulfill it, in the sense of explaining what it really means and in the sense of accomplishing all of it in my own life. Um, So a couple other things just for, for, for the sake of background. Um, who is it to? Jesus is talking to the disciples, but also at the end of the sermon, we see that there's big crowds there. So there's a lot of people there. Probably the most important thing to know in terms of who is he talking to is to remember um, the first century context for Israel and that Israel was an occupied territory, um, that, that, that Rome was in charge. Israel was back from the exile um, but they were not in charge. Uh, Rome was. Um, and the reason that that's important is because as you, we go through the sermon, there are things that Jesus is going to say which can sound kind of abstract and hypothetical, but they're actually very specific. When Jesus says, um, if someone tells you to go one mile, go two, he's referring to something that a Roman soldier could conscript anyone to do at any time. A Roman soldier could walk up to anybody and say, you, carry my luggage. Um, when Jesus says, if someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him your left. That's a thing a Roman soldier could do with impunity. Um, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. These would have been specific people standing right over there that Jesus is talking about. The, the, the context helps us see that Jesus is not talking in the abstract. He's talking about very real concrete situations. In terms of the overall contents, what is in the Sermon on the Mount? What is, it, what is it that we're going to be studying over these next several months? Maybe the best thing to do would be to go back to that first verse that Harmony read for us just now. Chapter 4, verse 17 said, for at that time, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, and one way to summarize the Sermon on the Mount is simply to say, um, this is what Jesus thinks that that looks like. This is what it looks like to repent and live as though the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that he has come to bring, is at hand. But it means to live um, in that kingdom. 
Um, and, and that is where we come to this first question um, that, that, that we need to, uh, to ask ourselves, um, which is, are we actually meant to live according to the standards that Jesus sets? Because as he lays out his picture of what it looks like to live in his kingdom, we're going to see that there are things here that, in addition to the familiar, um, uh, heartwarming, inspirational sayings that we all know, there's also some really hard stuff. When Jesus redefines the law, when Jesus um, explains what the law really means, you know, he'll say things like, you have heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say to you that if you're angry with someone, it's as though you've committed murder. He'll say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, something that Moses said, seventh commandment, right? But I say to you, he goes on, that if you look at someone with lust, that is tantamount to adultery. Um, he's raising the bar to a standard, to a level that we might, if we're honest with ourselves, think this is impossible. No one could actually do this. This sounds like hyperbole. Um, this sounds completely unattainable. Um, at one point in this sermon, Jesus is simply uh, going to say, be perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You say, is that really something that I'm meant to do? And I think that the way that we answer that question is going to depend on how we answer the other one. Who is Jesus? Who is this man that is speaking these words? Um, the answer will hang on how well we know Jesus. This sermon is a great place to get to know him. It's a great place to read what he really loved, what he really thought. Um, most of us, if we're honest, have sort of bits and pieces of Jesus that we like um, and bits that we're less familiar with or even put off by, right? Um, there's this silly illustration of this in, in that, uh, that, that movie that a lot of us have seen, Talladega Nights, right? It's a Will Ferrell movie about a race car driver named Ricky Bobby. And, and at one point, Ricky is praying for a meal with his family, and he bows his head, and he says, dear sweet baby Jesus, and someone stops him and says, sweet baby Jesus, why do you think, he says, I like to pray to the sweet baby Jesus, that's my favorite Jesus. Um, it's a silly thing, but a lot of us, if we're honest, probably have a Jesus that we prefer, and other parts of Jesus, other things that he says that we would rather that he not have said. Um, we might prefer the Jesus that's all about mercy. We might prefer the Jesus that's all about social justice. We might prefer the Jesus that's all about the law or making sure that the Pharisees are getting what's coming to them, right? Different things can appeal to us at, at different times. But to know Jesus as he is presented in whole throughout the Gospels, to take him as the whole person uh, who is the Son of God, um, that is challenging, and this sermon is a great place to get that challenge. Um, the Bible presents Jesus to us. I want us to consider these three things. Um, 
as a prophet and as a priest and as a king, all three of those. I want us to, 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 to think about what those mean. Um, he's a prophet. A lot of people, if you ask them to describe their ethic, even, uh, even non-Christians, you know, will, will say, they might reference this sermon, I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount. I try to live according to the teachings of Jesus. I think of Jesus as a great teacher. And, and Christians are often quick to say, well, he's not just a great teacher. This is true. But that doesn't mean he's not a great teacher. Um, Jesus is a great teacher. A, a prophet in the Bible is one who brings the word of God. And Jesus is the prophet. He is the one bringing the word of God. He is the word of God uh, in the flesh. Matthew, again, is presenting Jesus as one who is even greater than their greatest prophet, um, Moses. Here, here's the question that that raises for us. Are you teachable? Can you be taught? Can you be corrected? Can you be instructed? Um, the book of Proverbs, uh, book of wisdom in the Old Testament, makes a big deal out of this question. In the book of Proverbs, there is nothing worse than being someone who can't be taught, who refuses correction. There is no bigger fool in the book of Proverbs than one who is wise in their own eyes. So are you teachable? Do you, do you know that you lack wisdom and that you need it? And are you seeking that wisdom from God in the ways that he's offering it to you? Are you seeking wisdom in God's word for the places where you lack wisdom in your life? Um, are you seeking wisdom in prayer? Are you engaging with God in prayer? Are, are you engaged in community? Are there, are there people, other Christians, that know you well enough that they can speak into your lives, that you've, that you've actually given them that access? Scripture, prayer, community. These, these three ordinary ways that God has given us to access wisdom. Are you seeking that? Are you teachable? That's one question for us to ask. The Bible presents Jesus not only as a prophet. Like I said, he's not just a great teacher. Even at the, the end of this sermon, um, if you turn to the, the end of it, chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, the, the little conclusion for the Sermon on the Mount says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Um, the, the first two verses, 5, 1, and 2, where Jesus um, uh, goes up on the mountain and sits and begins teaching, and then, and then these last couple of verses where it says he was teaching with authority, those are perfect bookends for this sermon because it presents Jesus as the prophet but also as the king. Jesus is not just the great prophet. He is also the king. He is also our Lord. And so then the question for us, let me start with the question this time. The question for us would be, when's the last time that you did something just because Jesus told you to? Just because God's word said that you should? Or, or didn't do something just because God's word said that you shouldn't? It can actually be hard to think of examples of that. A lot of the things that God's word tells us to do um, turn out to be pretty good ideas 
um, just in a, in a lot of, I mean, God's pretty smart. He knows how the world works. He made it. Um, but there are times when Scripture will tell us to do something that does not make sense according to the ways of the world outside. Um, I heard a great illustration of this. It was actually on that, that podcast. Okay, so the, the, the first uh, episode about the Sermon on the Mount from the Bible Project contains a story that I think illustrates what this looks like. Um, it's from the life of Corrie Ten Boom. A lot of you know who this is. She was a, a Dutch um, speaker, uh, author. When she was a girl um, in the Netherlands, um, her family had a secret room in their home. Her most famous book is called The Hiding Place. And it tells this story. They had this secret room where they would hide Jews from the Nazis, uh, the occupying Nazis, as they were coming through to round them up to take them to the camps. And they were discovered. And Corey and her family were sent to a camp. And her father died. And her sister died. And Corey survived. And years later, she became a speaker. She became a writer. And she tells this story about a time that she was giving a talk and she was talking about the forgiveness of God. And she looks out in the audience and she sees a face that looks familiar. And she realizes that it's one of the guards from the camp where she had been sent. It's, it's, it's one of the people who had actually tortured and killed her family. He's there. And after her talk on God's forgiveness, this man walks up to her and he says, it is so good to know that God has forgiven everything that I've done, but I would like to know, will you forgive me? And he holds out his hand. And stop and think, what would you do? Um, Corey says, Nothing in her wanted to raise her hand from her side, but she knew she had to. And, and how did she know that? If you do not forgive others their sins against you, your Father in heaven will also not forgive your sins. She remembered words from the Sermon on the Mount, and she knew that she had to forgive this man. Um, there's a lot to unpack with this. Forgiveness is really hard. When we, when we come to verses about forgiveness, we'll have the chance to unpack um, a, a lot about what's going on there. But, but for the moment, um, this is a picture of what it looks like to have something in front of you that does not make sense, except that God is telling you in his word, this is what you have to do. And to be able to, and to give him that authority to say, because Jesus is my Lord, I will do this thing. Um, Jesus, in this sermon, as we consider, are we supposed to take it seriously? Jesus really does seem to mean what he's saying. He really does seem to think that the kingdom has drawn near, it really can be among and within us, and that this is what life inside it is supposed to look like. Um, in the Sunday school class that we're doing in the book of Titus, the, the, the center of that book um, is, is this verse that says, 
that the reason Jesus died, you know, the Bible gives different reasons that Jesus died, right? To atone for our sins, to defeat all of his enemies. But in Titus, Paul says, Jesus died that he might purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. His death was for us to live like this, that we would actually do what he says. We would actually obey. Now, so far we've said that Jesus is a prophet, greater than Moses, the word of God in the flesh. He is the king. He is our Lord with all authority. Um, in some ways you can think about both of those things being connected to him ascending, right? I mean, this, this passage we read, Jesus ascends on the mountain and sits and begins to teach as a prophet. Um, at the end of his life, after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he's seated in order to reign as he is now. He's the prophet and he's the king. But in order for us to hear any of this as good news, in order for us to hear this as, 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 as not an impossible standard that's just a great weight for us to carry out of this room when I'm done, um, but to hear this as good news, we need to remember that Jesus is also presented as, as a priest and that there's another mountain. There's one more mountain that he climbed. It's Calvary, where he climbed the mountain to be our priest, who's also the sacrifice. Um, when Jesus climbs the mountain as prophet, his disciples come to him. We gather around him as our ascended king. Um, it's hard to see the disciples coming to Jesus on the Mount of Calvary. John's, John's Gospel says, that only Mary, his mother, and Mary's sister, and one disciple, John, uh, was there. The rest had scattered. But it, it was John um, who would get to see Jesus again in a vision this time on the island of Patmos, seated on a throne, looking like the lamb who was slain. Um, we need this third mountain. Uh, we need Jesus, our priest. If if Jesus isn't our priest, who's also our sacrifice, if he hadn't climbed that third mountain, then, then the word that he proclaims as the prophet would only be a word that condemns us. It would just be a standard that is impossible, that we fail day after day. And, and, and his, his rule, his authority, the um, Bible talks a lot about Jesus, God, reigning over and destroying their enemies. If we're still in our sin, if Jesus is not the one who has sacrificed himself for us, if we are still in our sin, then, then that's us. Then we are rebels who have turned away. Um, if Jesus is not the priest that's also the sacrifice, um, then his word only condemns us and his reign is only our doom. But if he is, if Jesus has climbed this, this third mountain, if Jesus has gone to the cross bearing our sin, and we bear it no more, um, if the words that we said earlier in this service um, about the forgiveness that's offered again and again because of what Jesus did once for all on the cross, if that's true, then the law can be a delight. 
And then his reign can be our victory. Um, And then, thinking about living out the Sermon on the Mount doesn't become so much a standard that's impossible to bear. It becomes an invitation into a life that is rich and that is full and that is beautiful. Um, And not only beautiful to us, by the way. Let me say one, one more thing about this. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, points out um, that the Sermon on the Mount has a real evangelistic thrust to it because what would it look like if there were a community that actually lived like this? What would it look like if there were a community that actually loved their enemies, actually prayed for those who persecuted them? Um, it would be a beautiful thing. It would be different. One of the questions that we ask ourselves often um, is, is there anything in the life of this community that looks different from the world outside? By God's grace, I think the answer to that a lot of times is yes. Um, But where we see not enough, that's an opportunity for us to pray. That's an opportunity for us to yet again admit our need and to admit that our faith still needs growing and deepening and feeding. Um, And that's why we come to this table each week. That's why we come to the Word, to be reminded of who God is, to be called back to Him, to be called yet again to repent and believe that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then that's why we come to this table, to have our faith fed, that we might grow in maturity together into Him who's our head. So as we come to this table, let's bow our heads and let's pray.